Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, emptiness, jhanas, awakening, science fiction novels, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with meditation teacher and psychotherapist Stephen Bodian. Stephen Bodian is a psychotherapist and a teacher in the non-dual wisdom tradition of Zen and Advaita Vedanta. After training as a Zen monk and studying Advaita with Jean Klein, he received Dharma transmission from Adya Shanti in 2001. His books include Wake Up Now, Beyond Mindfulness, and Meditation for Dummies. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call, Why Do Narcissists Become Spiritual Teachers? with Stephen Bodian. Stephen, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Well, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Recently, in the past several months, we've had a number of, shall we say, direct path or non-dual teachers on the program, such as John Prendergast and Locke Kelly several times. Mm. We even had Mukti Mm. over a year ago. That was fabulous. Mm -hmm. And maybe other folks I'm forgetting here in my dotage. And so it's interesting to have you on here because we're going to, I think, discuss some things that we haven't talked about much with the other teachers So I'm looking forward to that. But before we kind of dig into that material, let me just ask you, like, can you tell us a bit about your, you know, meditation background and how you got into it and and what brought you from there to here? Yeah, I uh, discovered Zen as a teenager and studied Eastern religions in college and then began to meditate in my senior year of college after a very difficult psychedelic journey, <laughs> probably not a, an uncommon story. And when I discovered Zen, I really felt that I'd come home. There was something about it that felt so deeply familiar at the soul level. And I began practicing in my senior year of college and continued for the next 10 plus years, including more or less 10 years as a Zen monk. Who were you studying with? I began at the New York Zen Studies Society, but very briefly. And then my first retreat was after traveling across the country from New York to California to go to Stanford. I ended up at the Zen Center of uh, San Francisco and sat a seven-day session with Suzuki Roshi. Oh, wow. So uh, classic, very classic. That's awesome. Well, wonderful, precious opportunity to meet him and study with him. I did two more uh, long retreats with him that year. And then uh, I was uh, scheduled to go to Tassajara in the fall and be with Suzuki Roshi there, but uh, he developed gallbladder cancer and he did not teach the session at Tassajara. It was uh, Katagiri Roshi. Oh, wow. And uh, Suzuki Roshi died while I was at Tassajara, that first training period. Hmm. Very sad, but I did get to spend three long retreats with him, which you know left an indelible impression on me. Just more by the quality of his presence than by anything particular. You know, he used to give talks on you know choosing. You know, for example, the one talk I remember very distinctly was that we should always choose the most uh, unattractive fruits and vegetables in order to have compassion for them. <laughs> uh, and you know that really sticks with me, but. Uh, so just the quality of the <laughs> presence, yeah. And, of course, then I read Zen My Beginner's Mind Inside and Out for many years. But that was a great introduction to Zen. And then I studied for about five years with Coben Chino, who was at the uh, Los Altos Zendo, Haiku Zendo, uh, who took the reins of that after Suzuki Roshi kind of handed it over to him. He was also a beautiful, eccentric teacher, I loved dearly and a kind of crazy wisdom in a certain way. What was the teacher's name? Uh, Koben Chino. Koben Chino Otogawa, but we called him Koben. He was noted at Tasahara for once falling asleep during his own lecture. 
a story that is often told about Kogan, but, you know, he was brilliant. I mean, he went to Komazawa University and was slated, you know, to rise in the hierarchy at Heiji, but he was really very much a renegade, a rebel, and uh, left and came to the U.S. to teach American students. A beautiful, beautiful guy. You know, young, he was just... He was 30 when I met him. <laughs> I was 23 or something, so he wasn't much older than me. <laughs> and what were you studying at Stanford? English literature. Yeah, mm, that's nice. a PhD program, actually. Nice. Good. So you stayed with Coben Roshi a long time, or how did it unfold from there? Uh, well, I went to Tassajara while I was studying with Coben. I started with Coben that first year and, and Suzuki Roshi simultaneously. And then I went to Tassajara for three training periods, which is about a year and a half. And then I got back and spent another three and a half years with Coben, four years, whatever it was. And then 1976, I ran into, literally almost uh, ran into Maizumi Roshi. He was visiting with Coben, and I was running up the path to meet with him and straightening my rock suit which is that little bib that Zen practitioners wear. And I wasn't watching my step, and I almost literally ran into him. And something about his presence, very grounded, kind of confident, <laughs> authoritative presence really struck me. And uh, at that time, I was looking for more traditional Zen practice. Coben taught what he called guerrilla Zen, G-U-E-R, I-L-L-A, by which he meant he did not want people to go to monasteries. You know, he wanted them to practice in everyday life. Uh, having been ordained a monk, I was looking for something more monastic, actually. You know, I liked Tassahara, and I wanted some traditional Zen training, you could say. So I ended up following Maizumi Roshi to L.A. Coben was not happy, I don't think. He was reluctant to admit it, but subsequently I heard that he was not happy that I left. But it was just what I felt drawn to do. Good. And so how long were you there with Mayazumi Roshi in L.A.? Uh, I was there another five years then. Three and a half years of that initially. And then I spent a year as the head of a little satellite zendo in San Diego. And I gave talks and Dyson interviews with people uh, about their practice. And then at the end of that time, it became clear to me that, first of all, my practice had sort of stalled, you could say. I felt that my sitting practice had become very dry, and I didn't feel like it was moving at all. And I also was very aware of what seemed to me very dysfunctional behavior, shall we say, in the community. And, you know, I've been noticing it for quite a while. So a number of factors. One, my practice had stalled. I started to do some psychotherapy with one of the students at the San Diego Center and started to see issues that I felt I needed to work with before I could go on to be a Zen teacher. I was being groomed to be a teacher, you know. And I felt I really couldn't, in all good conscience, be a teacher of other people until I worked with my own uh, unresolved psychological issues, you know. And I felt that was really important. So I left and went back to the Bay Area with the intent of studying psychology. Roshi gave his blessings to my leaving. So I went. Did you continue to meditate in the Zen tradition at that point? Or what were you doing? You know, I did a little bit. You know, I moved to Berkeley. And so I sat a little with Mel. I guess you know Mel at Tassahara. I actually don't know who that is. but Oh, Mel Weinsman. He has been the head of Berkeley Zen Center for many, many years. He's, I didn't study with him. I would sit occasionally, not very much, but several things. Shortly after leaving the Zen Center of Los Angeles, about a year and a half later, I hosted, along with another monk from CCLA, a gathering of Zen psychotherapists on a houseboat in Sausalito. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And we talked about some of the issues of teacher and student and some of the ways that teachers were going astray and some of the power issues. This was before any of this was really being talked about. We recorded these sessions. Some of the people who were there went on to become Zen teachers themselves, but people asked that those recordings not be used. So 
they remained in my possession until I threw them away about 10 years ago. <laughs> it was fascinating, you know, people divulging their own relationships with their teachers and how, you know, that had impacted them. It was a powerful gathering, you know, we gathered for a few days. And then at about the exact time that we were doing that, it was starting to come to light that Mazumi Roshi had had an ongoing sexual relationship with one of his senior students, mm. uh, chosen Jan Tansule, who was married, and Roshi was married as well. So that's kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, it, yeah. it kind of, for me, who had really struggled with having left the Zen Center, because, you know, leaving the Zen Center was very difficult. You know, I, I describing it, I made it sound like it was a, an easy transition, but it wasn't because I was leaving behind a world and a worldview and an identity that I'd been deeply invested in for a dozen years. And I felt somehow that it, I had made a mistake, that it was due to my deficiency that I couldn't hack it, in, in a sense, in the Zen world. That was my view. and. You know, it took me several years of psychotherapy to actually resolve that. And I think that seeing what came to light helped me resolve it because I realized that what I had seen and what I had sensed, I mean, Roshi's alcoholism was, was blatant. There was no hiding that. But what I had sensed under the surface, the affairs that were going on, the philandering, the misuse of power, that I had been accurate in my intuition, in my assessment, and that was a, you know, really a confirmation for me to trust my intuition on other things. And had you noticed similar things? I think you might have been there too early, but had you noticed similar things going on at San Francisco Zen Center, or was this previous to Baker Roshi? No, I was there way before any of that was going on. I mean, that came to light in 1982, as you may recall, uh, with that article by Katie Butler in uh, Yes. But, you know, I wasn't involved in the Zen Center in San Francisco, you know, after Tassajara, which was 1972, 73. Oh, I see. Okay. And so how did it affect you to realize that your intuition about what had been going on was correct? And It was empowering. I bet. And up to that point, would you say that you were a, and maybe you still are, a religious Zen Buddhist, or was it more of a psychological practice for you? Oh, no. I have often said that I was a fundamentalist Zen Buddhist. I was a dyed-in-the-wool Zen guy, you know. I bought the whole thing <laughs> lock, stock, and barrel, you know. I was totally invested in the lineage and the tradition, the forms, all of it. Yeah, and so how did seeing this all confirmed, all this misbehavior, how did that affect your relationship with your Zen fundamentalism? Well, it caused me to really question it, of course. Now, I have to say that Coben always told me, and I, you know, I had a very close relationship with Coben. He was like my elder brother in many ways. He gave me clothes to wear in Tassara. He gave me long underwear. I stayed at his house when I came out. You know, We were very close. And he was, again, a renegade. He always said to me, never call yourself a Buddhist. You know, Never consider yourself a Buddhist. Now, there was a part of me that wanted <laughs> to be more traditional, which is why I went to Mizumi Roshi, who was much more traditional. But I had a good dose of the skepticism about traditional forms from really my first Zen teacher, you know, but that was a great gift. Yeah, that's very lucky, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that helped me, I think, through the transition. It gave you kind of a safety net. That's right. Something to fall back on. Exactly. I remembered then some of the things that Coben had said. And of course, what he had always said was, you know, trust yourself, just as the Buddha had said, you know, on his deathbed, you know, work out your own salvation with diligence. He said to his monks, right? Yes. Find your own way, be a light unto yourself. And that came back very strongly. And so, you know, now you are a non-dual teacher. How did you get from, you know, where our story has left off to doing that? Well, I studied Tibetan Buddhism for a couple of years with a teacher who has subsequently been completely dishonored, and I left him for the same reason. I intuitively sensed 
that something was going on that was not kosher. And really an integrity. Yeah. yeah, I could see it. It was obvious. So after that, I studied with a few other Tibetan teachers. And then I stumbled upon, once again, my path has been to discover teachers and then get a real intuitive sense of this is the right person to study with, you know, by the quality of their presence. I felt that with Maizumi Roshi and it was what it was. Can you say anything about how you feel into that quality of presence? Like, is there anything you could describe? It's very difficult to describe. That's a great question, though. Yeah, it's not so much a visceral thing, necessarily. The way I've described it with Jean Klein, who I'm about to talk about, was whatever he's got, I want that. You know, yeah. Whatever he's embodying, that's what I'm looking for now. This is what I need now. This is the next step. And, you know, I felt that with my Roshi. I need that traditional. Coben was very airy in some way, very ethereal. He was a poet. He was a, an incredible calligrapher. But when I saw my Roshi, his feet were firmly on the floor. You know, there was something mm -hmm. very grounded about him. And I think I knew that I needed that. And that was what I needed. I think it was very appropriate. Again, it reached its limits. It came to its end. His feet on the ground were literal feet of clay. That's right. That's great. That's beautiful. Exactly. His feet on the ground were feet of clay. Exactly. He was too rooted to the clay, right? <laughs> too mired in the mundane, perhaps, in the, uh, the world of desires, you know, and samsara, perhaps. But when I met Jean Klein, what really struck me about Jean Klein was that, you know, Maizumi Roshi really had a kind of proprietary ownership of his students and of the center. It was all a reflection of him, you know? And the Tibetan teacher as well, I felt very much like I was his student and he was using me in a certain way for his own self-aggrandizement in some way. Not, not only me, but at the time I was the editor of Yoga Journal, and I think he was very interested in that. Yes. What you could do for him. What I could do for him. And when I met Maizumi Roshi, particularly the first time I had a kind of one-on-one -on -one meeting with him, what really struck me about him is that he had absolutely no interest in my being a student. In fact, he didn't take me as a student. I could just tell. We were just two people sitting there. Yeah. And I was deeply, deeply struck and moved by that. And I thought, this is freedom. You know, I've been involved in Zen and Buddhism all along. This guy's not a Buddhist, but again, whatever he has, I want that. It's such an interesting way of assessing or, you know, seeing into what teachers might offer is not so much about the lineage, not so much about the teachings or the practice or the particular religious viewpoint or which version of Buddhism or whatever they're offering, but just straight up, do I want to be like that? Yeah. It's a very interesting way of guiding one's practice, one's own practice. And I, I certainly relate to it, you know. It's not so much the... I want to learn this or that practice. It's more like who seems to be manifesting the thing, you know? Right. Yeah, I would actually recommend that to people as a way to assess and to find yourself moved or drawn to a particular teacher is to, I mean, there are other you know, criteria that one could use, but I think that's a fundamental one. That there's something about their quality of their presence that I would like to embody as well, that I would aspire to. And so... Tell me about meeting Jean Klein. Uh, well, a friend invited me to some of his gatherings. And, you know, when I first heard the way he was expressing things, you know, it was very different from Buddhism in a lot of ways from what I had heard. And at first I was a little turned off or a little skeptical. I, you know, I thought, I mean, you know, I wonder if this is a cult, you know. <laughs> it seemed and everyone was so quiet. What was the scene? Where did you meet him? Berkeley, actually. Mm. John Klein would come to Berkeley. He would actually give weekends at the Shambhala Center, which was at the time in a Scottish a Masonic temple or something like that. I remember it was up a flight of stairs above the street. I don't remember you know, exactly, but I think it was the Shambhala Center. And he would take yeah. over for a weekend. 
and we would do uh, an intensive. I mean, I think I went to a few talks first, and then I did a you know a couple of intensives with him. I actually interviewed him very early in my contact with him for Yoga Journal. Okay, so it was in Berkeley, and you were going to essentially satsangs. It sounds like he called them dialogues. Dialogues, good. Yes. And so, what happened there for you? The terminology started to make sense, and I particularly liked what he said about meditation, which was, you know, don't make meditation a habit. There's no need to meditate or meditate if you feel drawn to it. You know, let yourself be drawn to to sit quietly. You know, let the silence solicit you. You know, things like that. And he would say, the only reason to meditate is to find out the meditator. And that really struck me. You know, discover the, the one who meditates, right? Yeah. You know, so don't make a habit of it. Don't do it in order to cultivate states. Do it to find out who you really are, right? And that really struck deep. And so you were hooked at that point. I got hooked. I got hooked. And I especially got hooked to my first retreat, which was the summer of 88 at Mount Madonna. Something about that, I remember asking a question about, you know, having realized uh, certain things. He said, you've been carrying these bags around for so long. He said, just set them down, you know, just like that. Mm. And I thought, wow, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to set them down. And one thing that Jean said, he said it at this retreat, and then he said it again at the next retreat I did with him, which was in February of the following year, 89, at the Santa Sabina, San Rafael. He said, the seeker is the sought. The looker is what he or she is looking for. And that struck really deep. And that was the phrase that woke me up. And, you know, clearly this is the sort of fundamental direct path teaching, right? Mm-hmm. However, hadn't you heard something similar quite often in your Zen practice? No, not really. That's interesting. You see, at least when I was practicing Zen, you know, maybe something like that had been said and it didn't resonate with me. That's certainly mm-hmm. possible. But the teachers that I had were teaching more traditionally. You know, maybe Zen teachers say that nowadays, but they would often teach from koans, you know. And and actually, Mizuni Roshi, if you really listen to what he's saying, often it didn't really make that much sense, at least to me. I never found his talks particularly helpful or inspiring at all. I did Doksan with him, you know, the interviews, and I worked on koans, and, you know, I did that sort of thing. But I never resonated with the koan study. These ancient Chinese stories never really touched me. You know? Yeah, it's so fascinating. So my main Buddhist teacher, Shinzon Young, says, you know, after a Vipassana teacher lecture, you should feel perfect clarity. And after a Zen Roshi speaks, you should feel totally confused. I think that's the so, intent. But, <laughs> yeah. 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 So clearly you're getting the, the, the direct transmission of total confusion. Yeah, I think so. It could be to invite you to bypass the mind because Roshi's, yeah, they did not make much sense. But something about the simplicity and clarity about it, as well as, of course, the quality of his presence. See, I always felt that Jean was teaching me in the silence. You know, so I was receiving, I felt always I was receiving the transmission in the silence between the words. And there would be a lot of silence uh, when Jean talked. Yeah. Uh, powerful silence, yeah. And so where did you go from there? I continued to study with Jean for the next eight years. Mm. You know, he stopped really teaching in the final three years because he had a series of strokes and, you know, he wasn't able to teach. He developed a kind of dementia from the strokes. But I was still a very devoted student until his death in 98. And I'm curious, you know, was it simply continuously coming back to you know, the natural mind or whatever we might call it? Or did he also point out ways to work with this to, say, heal one's psychology or, you know, other sort of, we might say, relative world problem-solving stuff? Uh, He didn't engage in that at all. Mm -hmm. You know, relative world problem-solving at all. That was not of interest to him, really. You know, he would talk, you know, occasionally about working with emotions, 
for example. And again, I'm just reporting my memory and experience of Sean Klein, but, uh, you know, others who study with him would remember other things, you know? So let's consider this secondhand, you know, uh, what I took in, what I assimilated. But for example, if you were working with an emotion like fear, he would say, remove the label fear. He say, because as soon as we conceptualize it as fear, we freeze it in some way, you know, we reify it. Yeah, we make it into a thing. There you go, make it into a thing. So remove the label fear and just experience it directly as sensation. And then he said, then it would, you know, unfold in your awareness and release. So that was a kind of a directive, a, a guideline for working with feelings. You know, it could be the same for sadness or anger, but again, more of a direct path approach, you see. And so this led to an awakening experience for you? Uh, being with Jean, and in particular, I had this awakening early on in the first year that I was with Jean. But what I would say was, uh, you know, I've often said that, you know, at least my awakening, and I, I think uh, awakenings are often this way, is that when you have what was a powerful awakening experience, it's like you've downloaded a zip drive, you know, Mm. in that one instant, and it was a moment out of time, it was like I downloaded all this wisdom. It just felt like it all just came in a, a huge download. But it took me years to unpack it, you know. And I had subsequent awakenings which were really just of a kind of a deepening and clarifying of what I really saw in that one moment, you know. Uh, so it took years for it to, to unpack, I would say. Oh, maybe it's still unpacking, you know. It's, it takes a lifetime, you know. But it took years to really get what I got, you know, in that sense. Now, I'm almost afraid to ask, given, you know, the background you had with other teachers, but did... Jean Klein end up also having a, you know, dark closet filled with misbehavior? No, no. You know, maybe I'm mistaken, but I don't think so. I know most of the people who knew Jean intimately, and no, he didn't. Actually, you know, beautiful. I mean, it felt like Jean was who he appeared to be. You know, there wasn't a shadow. And so, you know, you've been working both personally and now professionally, but in this field since, you know, late 60s, early 70s? Mm -hmm. Well, in this field, I would say, you're talking about psychology and spirituality. You've been involved in spirituality since the late 60s and psychology since it sounds like the 80s or so. And, you know, at this point, it must be pretty clear to you I would assume what's going on with these teachers that it's so common and so almost sadly predictable that they just, you know, fly off the rails and start engaging in egregious misbehaviors. So I'm just curious, what sense have you made out of all this? And and why does this occur so commonly? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I would say, and this refers not only to teachers, but to all of us, which is that awakening is just the beginning of a long journey, right? Yes. And I think we tend to make it the be-all and the end-all, whereas in fact, it's just the start. Instead of the end-all, it's the begin-all. Yeah, it's the begin-all. But I think what tends to happen for all of us, but spiritual teachers are, as you said, the most egregious example, and especially because they end up having power over their students. We can talk about power as well, but, uh, you know, and in terms of the power they have over their students, one of my Zen colleagues, he really could say, was Aiken Roshi, Robert Mm -hmm. Aiken. And he said in one of his books, it was called The Mind of Clover, he said, uh, which is on the precepts, he said that the teacher represents a whole world of meaning for the student, right? Yes. The teacher embodies a world of meaning. Now, if you've invested time, energy, heart, love in this world of meaning and the teacher betrays you, then they've shattered 
potentially, doesn't always happen, but potentially can shatter your relationship with these teachings, you know, this world of meaning. That's a lot of power, and that's a lot of potential psychic damage, trauma, that one can experience as a result of a teacher who goes astray. So, you know, just to say that this is not a minor thing, right? I think we have to appreciate the gravity of the situation. We can say everything's perfect as it is, which I'd be happy to agree to, but at the same time, at the relative level, that's a lot of pain. Yeah, I'm not a psychotherapist or a psychologist, but as a meditation teacher, I've worked with far too many people who have been directly abused, raped, ripped off, psychically fucked over by their teacher. And it is a world of hurt. That's right. It's very sad. It's the hurt and it's also the confusion. You know, he represents the tradition. And look what he did. Can I trust this tradition? Can I trust these teachings, right? So it's the betrayal of trust that is in a way the deepest wound, I would say. Yeah, I would agree with that. And yet we're kind of focusing on the student here, but what is it about the teachers? And would you say that it's particularly teachers in emptiness or non-dual traditions? To begin to talk about teachers, right? So I think what happens is that teachers have awakenings. I mean, now we're talking about teachers outside established lineages. I mean, established lineages, whole another story. But let's say in those traditions where, or those teachers who become teachers because they've had an awakening and then declare themselves teachers, with or without the approval of someone else, right? And there are a whole bunch of those in the Neo-Advaita world, right? I think what tends to happen is they take the awakening to be the be-all and the end-all rather than the beginning. They don't do, or at least haven't done, the work of integrating and embodying the awakening in everyday life, which could include you know, a great deal of psychological work, which I would highly recommend. And they somehow confuse what they've awakened to with their individual self, which Jung calls inflation, right? This is what's called psychic inflation. Jung would say that inflation is when a person identifies themselves with an archetype, right? It's certainly very common when someone has any level of awakening experience. They're going to often, anyway, seem to be very inflated or Mm. maybe even kind of manic. I hope it's not too common, but yeah, I mean, I think it does happen. (laughs) Uh, Maybe you're right. You know, so I think there is that tendency to do that. In fact, it's one of the, what's called a Zen sickness, the tendency to be, you know, become manic in a certain way, to become consumed by the archetype of awakening, because awakening in some way, you know, there's the guru principle, you know, the awakened mind, awakened heart. That's not who you are. I mean, it's who you are fundamentally. But what happens is that we take, you know, like I am consciousness, right? The whole point of that is there's no I, there's only consciousness, right? That's what we genuinely awaken to. There's only consciousness. There is no separate self. But what tends to happen is, you know, I am consciousness. (laughs) That's the error, right? And then you take yourself to be this perfect expression of consciousness. And why wouldn't anyone else and everyone else want to study with you and bow down to you and uh, give their money to you, see, and their power. So I think that's what I would say where the mistake is. Now, you know, you could call that a kind of narcissism. I mean, it is. It's a fundamental narcissism. Maybe in a way the ultimate narcissism. The ultimate narcissism. I am literally everything to everyone. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Everything is an expression of me. (laughs) Now, isn't that narcissism personified, right? Everyone is just an extension of me, right? And then at the same time, I think there are those who already have 
narcissistic personalities to a greater or lesser degree. And so they come in with that tendency. And as I wrote about in this essay that's on my you know, blog post that I posted and got quite a bit of interest on Facebook, it seems like narcissists rise to the top of spiritual organizations because they have a tendency to think that they're special, <laughs> you know, and to be very goal and achievement oriented. And so they're the best at whatever they do and believe that they're best, they're the best. They have a tremendous amount of self-confidence because they believe they're special, right? And they take for granted that other people would want to, you know, bask in their glory, right? And they have a tremendous amount of equanimity, which seems like awakened awareness, you know, but in fact may simply be that they're not particularly caring or sensitive about the people around them. Things don't disturb them because they don't care, you see. And that gets uh, confused with awakening. Yes. Now, you made a distinction at the beginning of this saying that it's like self-proclaimed people who have awakenings outside of traditions. But of course, we see the very same thing in many, many traditions. Yeah, it does seem to be the case. I mean, it's happened quite a bit in Zen. And I think actually there's something about the way Zen is taught, maybe particularly in the West, that seems to feed into this inflation. You know, I'm not sure exactly why, but a lot of the placing of the teacher, the Roshi, on a pedestal to see them as potentially beyond ethics, you know, the so-called crazy wisdom tradition in Zen, uh, which in fact is really misunderstood. I think that there are very few authentic crazy wisdom teachers and so-called crazy wisdom, which crazy wisdom is acting in outrageous ways for the benefit of awakening others. That's what crazy wisdom is. Sure. It's not about taking advantage of others for your own self-aggrandizement or pleasure or advancement, see. And of course, crazy wisdom teachings are right there in the earliest Chinese Zen stories, yeah. right? The Blue Cliff Records or whatever. But as you say, you know, us sharing a joke about the tiger that has already bit me today and we both laugh or whatever is quite a bit different than, you know, some of these very damaging behaviors. Right, I agree. So I think it's the hierarchical nature of Zen is one of the things that feeds into it. I also think there's a tendency, someone once said, I forget who it was, that narcissism is one of the few things that is not really addressed in psychoanalytic, there's a lineage in psychoanalysis. Everyone who becomes a psychoanalyst gets a training analysis. They're analyzed by a, a senior psychoanalyst. And it's been said that narcissism is the one thing that's never really addressed because the ones who do the analysis are narcissistic. And so it's passed down from generation to generation. Now, I may be bad-mouthing psychoanalysts unnecessarily, but I think that happens in Zen too. For example, I think, and if I may say this, that Maizumi was, you know, really narcissistic. In a, I would say in a pathological way. I got to know him quite well after I left, and I was, you know, privy to some of the things he wouldn't say to other people, and I was stunned. So, and I think he passed it on to his students. He had a number of students who I think were already narcissistic and who he uh, proved in his lineage. So in a certain way, that tendency was reinforced and passed along. So I think that may happen as well. I would say with some confidence that that happened in his lineage. I won't name names, but I've already named Maizumi. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah. And so do you feel that kind of absolute teachings, the fundamental nature of emptiness, the emptiness of all things, particularly in this case, emptiness of things like vows, of, you know, behavior restrictions, emptiness of, you know, the meaning of my actions to other people, emptiness of how other people respond or... The precepts, you know, emptiness of the yeah. precepts, moral code... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this directly influences how 
you know, these teachers go astray. I think that's also true. And the Zen stories, again, can tend to feed that by giving you the sense that the enlightened masters act outside the precepts, act outside the tradition. I think that they may, in fact, do, but it's for the benefit of their students. It's not for their own. So it's a tricky area. I think it's a tricky matter. But I agree with you that the emphasis on the emptiness teachings, on the absolute, on the ultimate, without emphasizing the, the relative, the integration, the embodiment in everyday life, again, coming back to that that I was saying before, that awakening is just the beginning. And I don't think there are enough practices and teachings that really talk about how to embody and integrate. And what's interesting is I've just suddenly, I'm saying this now, but I've just suddenly become interested in the Kabbalah. Now, we'll see how far I take it, but I've discovered somehow that the Kabbalah, I come from a Jewish background, is full of teachings about how to wake down down into ordinary life, down into the realm of the senses, down into the realm of the erotic. And I think practices like that, which I don't think the Buddhist tradition, and certainly not the Advaita tradition, have really much of, I think would be very helpful to integrate and for us to learn how to do that. Yeah, of course, the whole structure of the Eitzchayim, right, the Tree of Life diagram, goes from absolute, you know, emptiness, essentially, all the way down to the most embodied, most mundane, most normal aspects of life, and has that entire diagram of the interactions all the way down, right? So that waking down gesture is really built into the whole system. And I think the Jewish mystical tradition is more interested in how the light of the divine expresses itself in the manifest world, in the human world, than it is so much in how human beings wake up, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful complement to the awakening teachings. Yeah, the whole concept of repairing the world, the tikkun olam, is so resonant with bodhisattva, compassionate-type teachings. is really interesting overlap there. Yeah, well, you seem to know quite a bit, Michael, about the, uh, the Kabbalah. Yeah? Not really, just, you know, a lifetime of reading about all different mystical traditions. And I find, of course, Jewish mysticism really fascinating for a Protestant kid from Michigan. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in any case. Um, and it has something to offer us now as, you know, these practitioners of the high path with no railing, as Stephen Levine like to call it Vita. You know, it's a high path with no railing. Maybe we could use a little more railing. <laughs> Maybe there's some more railing, yeah. I mean, yeah. it obviously is teaching an important truth, but I think we all agree on at this point is it's not the full truth or the totality of the truth. There's a, this whole movement of waking down, of what we would call cleaning up and growing up and showing up, not just waking up, but doing our psychological work and getting our relationships with other human beings in some kind of, you know, serviceable order is yes. incredibly important. Yes. I guess to state the obvious. Now, something that you also talk about with a great deal of knowledge is what students can do to sort of assess their teacher in terms, not of their awakening, but in terms of their reliability, their ethical nature, you know, how would you recommend that people sort of look at their spiritual teachers or their meditation teachers, not just to understand what they might want to embody in that, but also to know what to, to put it bluntly, you know, run away from? <laughs> run away from, yeah. Uh, yeah. Run in the other direction as fast as you can. Yeah. The Dalai Lama, you know, said, after one of the Tibetan teachers had been called on the carpet, basically, uh, although he actually didn't stop teaching, but the Dalai Lama said that uh, students should check out their teachers for at least a few years before committing to be the, the student teacher. Of course, this, in the Tibetan tradition, you make uh, 
Samaya vows for the teacher, we commit to an allegiance to the teacher. So he's talking within that context. But I think that is uh, really important to really check a teacher out carefully. And how do we, especially in traditions, guru traditions, where the teacher is often kind of sequestered or, you know, surrounded by a coterie of, you know, people who are there to minimally sort of shield them from the public, but in some situations, you know, act as fixers and mollifiers. How do we actually know what a teacher is really about and what's really going on? Well, if they are surrounded by this coterie, as you describe, and you really can't get close contact with them, then that becomes difficult. You know, I'm thinking that's more, already a warning sign. Yeah, um, I think it's a concern. Certainly, what I have said often is look at how a teacher treats the people closest to him or her. You know, how do they behave in the presence of those they are closest to? Do they treat them well? Are they kind? Do they walk their talk as much as you can see? Because again, if they're hidden behind a curtain, it's hard to see that. But if you can, you know, watch them among their students. And then also, how do their students behave? You know, because close students are often reflections of the teacher. Well, that's one of the reasons I left the Tibetan teacher. I saw the way he treated women in his sangha, women who worked with him and for him. It was clear to me that he was taking advantage of them. It turned out subsequently that he was abusing them sexually, but I never knew that. But what I could see was he would get angry at people, which was a big red flag for me, just for no apparent reason, you know? Things like that. Don't immediately write it off as the guru, you know? Do they walk their talk? Do they live in alignment with the truths they teach as much as you can see? Okay, that seems like totally reasonable, practical advice. Is there anything else you would suggest? That's about as far as I can go. Uh, again, intuition is the, the other piece, of course. You just get a bad feeling about it. Yeah, trust the intuition. Don't write it off. Uh, you know, it's so common for it to say, well, you know, I don't really, maybe I'm wrong. You know, uh, everyone else seems to think he's the greatest thing on earth and she is the greatest thing on earth. And, uh, you know, I, I just maybe I should reserve my judgment. Yeah, you know, reserving judgment maybe a good idea at first, but if you keep getting the same signals, then I would trust them. All right, Stephen. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast and sharing your wisdom. Well, lovely to be with you, Michael. I really enjoyed it immensely. It's been a deep uh, exploration. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, 
where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the DeconstructingYourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>